0: about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 718. I'm Jim McDowell. Here to tell you that this is another interview special. Now, this one's really a very special episode as Rich and I were able to sit down with Maddie Patterson. Now, many of you may know her as Maddie Scordia and she was recently married to, yes, that Simon Patterson. And we sat down with her to talk about MotoGP she had just gotten off the plane in Kuala Lumpur and Rapport Rich was up in the wee hours of the morning for this one and I, well, I had the primo spot of being nice evening time for me. One of the things we talked about with Maddie was mainly the product. How do you make MotoGP better and how does MotoGP attract more fans to it? Obviously, it's the product. Maddie goes into great in-depth about how she views the product how she views MotoGP, how she got into MotoGP, what she likes about MotoGP. We asked questions like, is Marc Marquez really going to leave HRC? And is Dukat, who's going to win the world championship? It's a wide-ranging interview, and Maddie was kind enough to give us an immense amount of time. We had asked for about an hour, and we wound up going a full 90 minutes. So we hope you guys are enjoying the interviews, and with that, here's Maddie <laughs>
1: Hi everybody, it's Jim and Rich again here. So we're coming at you with yet another interview. We've been busy, Jim, just lately, haven't we? Now, we're recording this on February the 8th or February the 9th, depending on which time zone you're in. And we're absolutely delighted today to be joined by, now I've got to get this right, Maddie Patterson, the formerly known as Scordia. (laughs) Um, First of all, Maddie, uh, I suppose we should say congratulations on the recent nuptials.
2: Thank you, thank you very much. It's um, it feels so long ago. It wasn't that long ago, but time flies. So
1: yeah, now Maddie has numerous areas of involvement in motorcycle racing. Uh, I was looking on your socials earlier, Maddie, and it's a bit bewildering because it says I'm going to list these off now: brand marketing, MotoGP correspondent, mentor, and I'm guessing that refers to your company, Maddie Scordia Management, which I think is a relatively yeah. new thing. Um, also, yeah. I'm I'm assuming that's not for profit patron of various charities and things yep. so we'll perhaps get into a little bit of that later on um you've just arrived in Kuala Lumpur ahead of the three-day test which is very exciting so I've just got to ask you because I've been to Kuala Lumpur a few times myself how's the heat and the humidity as compared with the rather cold and windy shores of Northern Ireland oh my god you
2: know how nice it was to step off of the plane yeah I had can imagine heat? like i didn't i didn't realize how much the weather would affect me and being an australian you know it's usually sunny most of the time so moving to northern ireland it's just a bit of a culture shock on top of the weather which is really badly affected me. So it's nice to be in malaysia i don't mind the heat i can deal with it
1: it's Yeah, it's nice at this time year that's for sure okay so let's get going then so a bit of a history where did the passion for motor racing originate from is it a family thing maddie um how did you sort of get into this game and did you ever imagine yourself having this kind of professional role that you're enjoying now
2: um I actually love this story because it's I think it's hilarious motorcycle racing was my ex-boyfriend's thing (laughs) it was something that he was into he was Italian you know he was big Rossi fan and we sort of got together when I was quite young and um you know we spent a lot of time together and we, we lived overseas and whatnot and then I guess after about 12 months of him sort of trying to get me to enjoy it um we went to philip island together i took him for his birthday and we just had the best time ever and that was really my introduction to moto gp and motorsport as a whole um and from there you know i went on to work in a couple of um promotional roles while i was completing my university degree and sort of working on my corporate roles as well um and that was my entire introduction to it and you know we broke up but I I kept MotoGP so that was when that occurred and I couldn't I won I won (laughs) but um, the the thing is for me it's a sport that really speaks to my personality because I'm a salesperson so I'm a driven must win kind of person and it it does sometimes feel like when I watch this race it is very much you against the world so it it really spoke to my personality in terms of things that I was passionate about and if you'd asked me seven or eight years ago would i be here i would have gone no like <laughs> how oh, no. but um lo and behold here we are
1: yeah can you remember what year was it that first race that you went to at pi can you remember
2: 2014
1: right and jim first man. one who won that race so, i'm trying to think but that, that must well, it must have been casey mustn't it no not no that. he retired 14 he retired, it had to
0: been rossi yeah was
2: yeah. yeah. And then we went the, the next, we went in 2015 and we were like, he's going to win the championship this year. And then it all unfolded with Marquez and Lorenzo. And it was, um. I think my boyfriend took it harder than I did. But...
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what is your degree from university in?
2: So I started uh, with a law degree and I quickly got bored of that because I realized that that requires a high level of attention to detail and heavy reading, which was just not my thing um and then i went on to languages and business so i did italian at university and i did my bachelor's degree which i completed last year in business okay. uh, so i studied sort of part-time and worked full-time for a long time because it just it, it i started going really far in my career quite quickly that university kind of always got the back burner and um last year moving overseas and after you know several things that had happened in my personal life i kind of went well i might as well just complete it like i've got the time so
0: yeah, I, I I hear you there. I I did it backwards. I concentrated on university and then bikes. So
3: <laughs>
0: we just should just say that up up my life. Jim's
3: <laughs>
1: Jim's an ex racer. He's very modest about this, but he's um, shared the All track right. with a few famous names down the years. Jim, aren't you? You going to tell Maddie about your past? Uh,
0: the, I I spent my entire life chasing Nikki Hayden, and that's a yeah. true that's a very true true story. Um. I had some other famous Americans, Larry Pegram and some other people who did some stuff on the world stage, but yeah, it was, I was never going to be good enough. So I had to become an engineer instead.
2: <laughs> What's wrong with that? I think that's I, awesome. And I find that the racing scene in the U S is huge. Like the U S has so many people and so many sports and it kind of disappoints me now that we're at this stage, not disappoints me. It's changing now, which is great, but the U S has definitely gone through a downturn in motorsports and now it's starting to change again which i think is so exciting to see
0: yep it, formula one has caught hold here now with three races this year uh motorcycles are always an outlier here in the u.s there was a very strong domestic series call it the late 90s early 90s and then after that there was a whole bunch of things that just went downhill fast but, you know, at that time, Malad and Spies had those ba- Titanic battles all every weekend. And then, you know, Ben left and went to the World Superbike and made, you know, showed up, won. And then you thought, wow, this is going to be MotoGP heaven for Americans. And it just never, never worked. So Let's well, see
1: what the
2: future holds. Times
0: are changing. Hopefully, it's going to get just... better.
1: Let's come up to date then. So we've got the Sepang test coming up, Maddie. Um, anything that you're particularly looking out for in this first three days? Obviously, it's very exciting that the boys are going to be out on track again. I know we've had the shakedown test, but this is the real action starts on Friday. So, what's your view going into this new season?
2: Um, I think it's a couple of different things. Sort of what I look for in in my perspective. What I like to publish. I'm definitely more of an emotional character, so I like to see what makes you tick and I think um for me sort of those stories last year came from Peco Benyaya they came from Frankie Morbidelli they came from um Fabio just in terms of this production and how big it is and what's going on and it, there's always something to fight against in yourself let alone on track um so I think it'll be interesting to see how they're feeling after a couple of months off training overseas you know Jack Jack Miller's been at home He's He's gotten married, he's had a wonderful time off as well. So that'll be it's it's what I like to see is how what happens to you on the outside of work affects you at work. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll be an interesting, um, interesting thing to see play out this year because we've got maturing personalities, young personalities coming through, people that don't really know where they stand yet, but they will. Um, and also Peko Banyaya has something to fight for this year, which is to, you know defend the title which is interesting because it's taken 10 years to get one and eight bikes on the grid so the last thing he wants to do is let that title go so that'll be a big pressure for him this year and he doesn't have the benefit of having jack miller on his team anymore Mm. so i'm keen to see that play out and i'm keen to get a chat in with them today we've got debriefs from 2 p.m this afternoon um so it'll be really good to see everyone after the break and so much has changed you know like suzuki's not there anymore so a whole lot of people aren't there anymore and Mm. Um, world champion going to Honda to be another world champions teammate that'll be a really interesting thing to see unfold. And, um, but yeah, I'm excited, I'm actually excited for this year because I think it's been a long time since we've seen so much shuffle happen. Um, hopefully, it brings a lot of good back into the sport.
1: Yeah, Jim, you've got a question that you wanted to ask about your favorite number 93, haven't you?
0: Yeah, I'll first. I'm interested, like you are, in the drama that's going to happen in the HRC garage and in the Ducati garage because Bastianini is not going to play second fiddle to Benyaya. It isn't going to happen. So there's that. So my question to you is, do you have any sense or feel of how big the rift is between Mark Marquez and HRC? There has been words that have spewed forth from Mark and I'm wondering is that just him trying to urge HRC on or is he really at a point where he may walk and go to KTM maybe no
2: no I think the thing that you have to think about with Mark Marquez right and I think Alaysha Spagrow said this earlier last year as well Alish considers himself the leader of his team as does Mark whether Mark says that openly, he's not, he may or may not. He is definitely the face of that brand. He is what we think of when we think of Honda. And a lot of people give him slack. You've never gone to a manu- another manufacturer. You've never done this. He doesn't have to. He is the goat. He doesn't need to go anywhere. He's very good at what he does and it works for him. Why change a good thing if you're happy, right? Um, And I think there's not been a rift... Per se, because you have to remember Mark went on a hiatus. He had a lot of work done. There was a press conference about it, and Honda backed him to the wall. Like they, yeah. they backed him. Um, there's two reasons for that one, because he is the best. And secondly, because they put all their eggs in one basket. So they didn't have someone else to lean on. They didn't have someone else to invest in at the time um, that was going to make those sort of useful changes that hopefully we'll see with Joan this year. Um, And in saying all of that, I think Mark coming back last year and getting a podium after taking a couple of months off in recovery shows that Honda has a lot of problems. Yes, they do. We know that. Their problems aren't Mark's problems because the bike, the engineering, the team he has around him are what make it work for him. The problem that Honda will encounter this year is making that magic happen for Joanne. Frankie Carcetti was Joanne's crew chief at Suzuki. Uh, i've heard him speak about this multiple times sort of when he started working with john on on new mechanics and new engineering and new parts of the bike they would just work on posture like a week on how to sit on the bike to be Hmm. comfortable on it how to how to get used to the bike um and when i look at hrc now i kind of wonder what they're going to bring to the table in terms of this development because they do have a world champion in their team and not a 125 or a Moto2 champion, like no, you have a MotoGP world champion and potentially someone who competed in the hardest year of MotoGP. If if we look at 2020 in terms of what was going on in the world, so I'm interested to see what happens. I personally really like how Honda works generally, and I, and what I mean by that is they are their brand. They really, they really back who they are, and this is probably the first time in a long time for them that they've had a downward spiral um but in saying that Mark comes back and gets podium so you know is it 50% the bike 50% the man how much is give and take we will see that unfold and I know that he's not completely happy but I also know that as an athlete he's the one that takes responsibility for it every week because you can't help yourself if you're not winning that's your problem Um, so I'm interested to see how that will unfold this year as well
1: do you have a view, just looking at the personality side of it, obviously, as Jim said, there's a lot of focus on Bastianini and Bagniaia and how that dynamic is going to work out. What, what's your view on the Jan well. Mir and Mar- Marquez dynamic in that garage? Because you get this notion a little bit that Mark operates quite on his own with his team around him. And given where Honda are in terms of the need to develop that bike as much as they possibly can, I wonder how much interaction there might be between those two.
2: I have a bit of a theory, which is no one, no one's going to agree with it and that's fine, right? But I, I kind of have this theory that Mark's kind of stepped into a new era, which is
3: mm.
2: either I win the championship again and I do it and then I tell everyone up yours or I develop the best factory on the grid again. It's one or the other. I really feel like that's the direction that he's stepped into, particularly after everything he's been through. I mean he'd be in physical pain constantly it'd be an emotional battle every day um you know people can say oh he had his injury six months ago he had surgery six months ago it doesn't mean the pain goes away it doesn't mm. mean your nerves recover and it doesn't mean up here you're not constantly battling you know you think about what these blokes are doing they're going 350 kilometers an hour so it's a battle it's it's not an easy kind of sport mentally or physically so I think when I look at mark now I really think this year is either do it or make it better it is either become the world champion on the bike that no one else can ride or make it a bike that succeeds in the future for people like John for the Moto2 riders that we're seeing coming up um I, I I feel personally like that's the direction that he mentally has to fight with himself about and if he's not winning, he has to develop. And he's a winner by trade. So, develop, development is not something that's natural to him outside of his own But mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I, I feel yeah. like that's kind of where he's at right now.
1: Interesting.
0: So, I think Mark Marquez, and you may laugh at this, I think he's one of the strongest writers mentally of anyone out there. Very little seems to affect that man. He can have the most massive high side and put it away, comp- compartmentalize what that was, and go right back out, go right back to that limit, and has no qualms about it, and that impresses me because I don't. The only other person who may be there, maybe not at Mark's level, is Quattraro, because from what we've seen, how can ride beyond the Ooh. limit of the bike, but I think hey, Quattraro is I would way disagree. okay. That's but fair. I would disagree.
2: Fabio, Fabio is a very emotionally um he's he's emotional, he he challenges himself emotionally. I don't think Mark does. Mm. Um Mark has a bit of a reputation for being off the script, right? Let's put it that way. There's a script, you say it, you go home. That's kind of how he is. Whereas Fabio emotionally, you know, I think after Asin, we really sort of last year after Asin, we sort of see this this dream kind of fall away after. He was put under pressure by his own team doing the wrong thing to him, um, and I think that played out in the latter half of last season. And we saw it in debriefs, we saw it on television. Um, I guess the only way I can describe it is the sparkle wasn't in his eye. He he generally strikes you as a really playful kind of kid. He's not a kid, but he gives off that playful, young, happy energy. And when he's struggling, he, you definitely see it.
3: Right.
2: Um, Mark definitely does comp- like c- compartmentalize what goes on but i think that that's very much a honda trait uh, mm. and i think he's been trained into that um because he doesn't come off as emotional and i'm not saying he isn't he absolutely is he's a human being but he doesn't strike me as an emotional thinker he has a script he says what he has to say he has the laugh
3: yeah
2: um and then he he reverts back to this kind of robotic, this is the way we do it. This is how it's done. This is why we do it. So again, when it comes back to seeing how Mark's going to change, that's what I want to see this year. You
0: know, Marquez, Rich and I always use Formula One analogies because it's the only other sport that's sort of at the very top that you can kind of relate to. Marquez always has impressed me as being the most Schumacher-like of all MotoGP riders. Very focused, very determined. Always, as she said, on script. But Schumacher could come off as being cold, where Mark doesn't. Mark has that smile uh, that he doesn't yeah. seem to be as cold, right? But he yeah, he's yeah. that way. It's a very, I'm going to be this, do this, we do this, we will be better. We're going to do thing. And I see where you're saying with Fabio. I was kind of looking at more from Fabio's standpoint of the way he rides. You know, I didn't think about it yes. from the standpoint of how he. Interacts with the team or at press conferences, things of that nature. So, I was thinking, like, just the way that Fabio can ride now, he rides well beyond the limit. He rides in that weird zone that only like him and Marquez can ride, oh, yeah. that is so far beyond and, what a bike can do. And yet, I'm gonna not only ride out there, I'm gonna yeah. flourish out in this weird little space <laughs> that's millimeters and
2: Yam- Yamaha. Yamaha and Honda are on the same boat as far as that goes, because if you look at the pair of them, if you put two different riders on those bikes, you're stuffed. So they're very similar factories and and it has a lot to do, I think GP1 covered this a couple of months ago. It is a cultural difference in terms of how the factories are run, where they come from, what their principles are, and that plays out on track. And I, I completely agree with you. He is just like a total freak, um, but he's another one. He is another athlete that goes it's 90% me and 10% the bike. If I can't make the bike work, no one can. And that's very much a Fabio Marquez kind of trait. And I'd go as far as to say it's an Aleish trait as well. Um, so so sort of seeing that development happen at Aprilia in the last couple of years has been fantastic. Um, but it is. They're freaks of nature. Like they, they really, and it is an athlete thing. It is a driven kind of thing. You know, if you can't make it work, it is your fault not someone else's and they definitely take most of the onus for that
0: so what kind of personality do you see in uh joan Mir?
2: i love john <laughs> like, how do i he's um i think you know when you meet people and they're just very humble
3: okay humble
2: yeah. people and they might be like one of the best ever but they're very humble about that and i I credit him for that because, like I said, I think 2020 was one of the hardest championships in the world to win. Not because we were racing, but because of the circumstances in which we were racing. Not seeing our wives, children, husbands being isolated in hotels for nine months of the year—it was horrendous. Mm. Um, And to go out there and do that is very, very impressive. So he strikes me as a very humble human being, and I think he's very good at direction. I think he's very good at giving direction. But I think what makes or what has made John really competitive in the past is his relationship with his crew chief, which I think is sort of the most important thing that everyone needs going into a team because you need someone's trust. You always need someone that has your back or you can talk to openly and say, "What? what is this? This is shit. In, in those words, you know what I mean? You need to have that kind of um, reverberation with someone. So I like Joemir a lot. he is a very humble character and I'm excited to see what he can do on the Honda and I hope it's very good things I hope this is the change that Honda needs you know they've gone through quite a few second seat riders over the last couple of years and there's just not been anyone that measures up so I really hope this is for him
1: A, a question that well we had up next on the list I'm going to change the nature of the question a little bit just to kind of continue down this thread of the you know the emotional makeup the competitive nature of all of these people who as you say Maddie, they're all individuals they're all completely different in their own individual ways so sprint races I think the whole debate around you know is it good is it bad how it was done I think that has been probably talked to death what's your view again because you know a lot of these riders you probably all of them quite well From an emotional standpoint, because it's a big, big change, isn't it, to the weekend, particularly in terms of the mental approach to take to this, and particularly if people start getting injured, do you see that the sprint races are likely to favour some riders particularly more than others, purely from that kind of approach point of view?
3: Um.
2: Yes and no. I mean, from a business point of view, I think sprint races made a lot of sense. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do, but they didn't have to change broadcast rights. They're still going to charge everybody everybody that has a, a viewing pass €199, a need to watch it. Um. It's... It didn't really change anything. It just changes the speed that you have to go to get points because we all know in quality, you're not going as fast as you actually can, because you're trying to avoid being injured. That's the goal. The goal is to get to Sunday, to get to race time, start, leave at the first turn, and away. That's that's your whole goal. I think it's really funny that all the writers that said they hated this idea had to backflip and say, oh, we love it. We're so happy. Like, none of them are happy. They've all had to renegotiate their contracts to get race win bonuses. Of course they have because that was part of their contract. So have they earned more money or potentially lost money? We don't. Um, Fabio hated the idea. It's an awful
3: idea.
2: And then we had Laura Spads on the internet going, well, if you're a real racer, you'll do two a weekend like we do. Like, no, you do. How many races do World Superbike do a year?
3: Yeah.
2: Like, <laughs> no, they're nowhere near the same. Nowhere near the same. We're on machines that go faster. We're at tracks that we are quickly out developing in terms of speed, um, which is quite worrying in itself. You know, we've had to look at places like Red Bull Ring. Red Bull Ring is an amazing track. And we've had to make changes to it in the last couple of years because we are too fast. Um, And I think when you think about sprint races, it's going to come to the point where it's, okay, how much is my race bonus for a sprint race? Is it worth it? How many points will it help me get in the long run? You know, what what does it overall contribute to? Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think as... An athlete as a racer as soon as you call something a race you want to win mm. because you'll get things like sponsorship bonuses and and all sorts of stuff involved whether it's a Grand Prix win or not is not really the question it's sort of what's in it for them in the long run um I don't like the idea personally I do if, like how do I put this in a business sense in a marketing sense um it makes a lot of sense I wish it was executed far better. I wish it was announced better. I think there were better ways to introduce this to a long-term calendar than just saying, "Bam, this is what we're doing." Um, that almost could have been made into a mini championship out of ten races of the year. You know, there were so many other ways to bring this to life. But yeah. um, in saying that, I'm not. I just I'm not a fan of it. I'm really not. It's like you're asking a lot because you put the word race in it. They're going to go fast, of course they are. Um, and it's just a lot more work for journalists as well, but that aside, like <laughs> it'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But yeah, I'm not, I, I don't think anyone actually liked that idea. All the writers found out from us. I remember doing a debrief in, Bez in the back of pit lane at Austria going, how do you feel about sprint races? And was like, what? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, Dawn had, could have done a okay. slightly better job on the message in front there. <laughs> I, think, I think, again, that one got talked through quite a bit last year. Certainly, Jim and I spent a fair bit of time on that, didn't we, Jim? Yeah.
0: Yeah. One, it was just introduced wrong. Uh, two, I'm not a fan. Well, and I... Mainly because I see MotoGP simply just doing what Formula 1 does and copies it and says, this is what we're going to do, but Anything that they've copied, they've done. Anything they've copied is half as good as what Formula One did, right? Like
2: no, it's not even half as good. It's like the worst knockoff. Okay. This is what irritates me about the sport. So this is what shits me something severe, right? You don't have to add more races to have more money. You don't need to add sprint races to have more money. Okay? If your product was good, really good. You had decent sponsors that we don't have to question the validity of, right? You went out and you had good brand partnerships. You knew how to market to an audience that you don't have, that being mothers, women, young people, okay, because this is the audience that matters now. You knew how to get to their touch points. None of this would, no one would be up in arms about it because the product would be good, Right? formula one has made quite a few changes as we've seen however the product remains the same it doesn't the product is the same
3: mm-hmm.
2: we love the product the changes they've made have only added to the product so they've gone and done a really good independent documentary series it was independent not directed by the people that own the series
1: mm-hmm. that rather smacks that the mark in your own difference. homework yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like
2: yeah you know it it, it is things like that and that's what I struggle with the longevity of this sport now is what is the product I mean you go and look at BSB for example British Superbikes great product right it's not MotoGP it's not World Superbike it's not trying to be it's British Superbikes they're excellent with their broadcast they're excellent with their brand partnerships they're excellent at getting young people to come and compete and convincing mothers Who are the people you need to convince to put their sons on motorcycles that this is a good place to be? It's safe, it's good, you want to be here. They're very good at it. We're now seeing that change in Moto America as well. We're seeing young women competing in Moto America. This is all new territory and they're doing it well. But at the pinnacle, we're knocking off a sport that isn't ours because it happens to have rubber. Big whoop! It's not the same. Have a product that people want to buy into. And then you don't have to have dodgy sponsors from Romania or, you know, add three or four races that, on tracks that aren't
3: even built. Yeah,
1: like, we, we, we talked a lot last year. I mean, just to segue into this, Maddie. we, Jim and I became very aware of you from that excellent article you wrote when the Suzuki withdrawal was announced. And, you know, you really focusing in on the fact that Suzuki just didn't appear to have the first clue how to market their product. how to attract perhaps the sort of backing that would have helped them to stay in the sport possibly We, we obviously we don't know that for sure um so it was fascinating the way you said you know if you think about the yamaha team what do you think of monster you know hrc repsol and you know some teams are doing it right but the overall product is is not quite there is it at the moment which is frustrating
2: And the thing is, it's not just the teams, right? The teams are always going to look at the infrastructure that's provided to them. So if the infrastructure itself is shoddy, then the product that the teams bring is going to be shoddy. You know, it's not going to have that weight of, we are a global motorsport brand. We are different. We are unique. We go faster than Formula One cars. We do it far, at far more risk to ourselves. You know, we don't put one bolt in and that's someone's life potentially. this It's so heavy. And no one's marketing that the right way. The product is amazing. It's just sort of been left for so long with no real change. Um, I think the governing body has a lot to do with that as well. But it's its just a shame. It's a real loss. And then you ask for changes. You ask for examples of what they have changed and you don't get them. It's just like a shiny gloss over a lot of scratches doesn't hide the scratches just makes it kind of shiny so you can't see
1: them yeah yeah you're you're absolutely right what you say about BSB I mean the thing that always impresses me about BSB is a it's very good value for money for a weekend ticket um okay it's not a MotoGP race but you know it's a good product lots of races and there are lots of families there I always observed that you know lots of young kids there boys and girls mums and dads you know few dads and dads, I'm sure, and a few mums and mums. But, you know, it is a very inclusive environment. And they, as you say, Stuart Higgs and the team do a, just a fantastic job. And I think, Jim, you'll probably yeah. say something similar about what's going on and starting to develop in Moto America.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing. There's, went to a couple of Moto America rounds. The racing product is pretty good at the front. We've now added quite a few big names on good equipment to make that bigger. It's great value for three days, like $89 for three days that's nothing that's so it's yeah. really good yeah. and you're there and while i have not seen lots of families there are some families but the whole thing with this the the marketing thing here's something that i've never understood and i'm not a marketing major i don't get how you sell product but i know this i've taken several of my friends co-workers And have drugged them, it's almost kicking and screaming, to a motorcycle race. Within the first 10 minutes, when they see Quattraro or they see Marquez, or they see these guys, any of them, Aleish, take your pick, flying by on two wheels, at the absolute edge of adhesion and control, literally riding a true bucking Bronco, they're instantly hooked. They're in. They're in and they're in hard. They're like, when's the next one? We got to go do this again. Yeah. I and I, I, TV is great and you can see a lot of things and from the bike and everything else, but there's something about having people there. And I just don't understand how we, I, I don't know how do you market that? How do you explain it to people that you have to come see this?
2: I, I honestly believe like at this in this day and age particularly, right? We're seeing a lot of things happen nowadays. You can't say this, you can't say that. You're this, you're that, I am this, whatever. With all of that in mind, the way that you sell product is by having one that is good, that is competitive, that makes you question. You know, it's, it's like when you have a business and you have two options for the same kind of product, but they're both slightly different. Which one is going to speak to you more? Which one is more useful to you? Yada, yada, yada. You sell product by having something that is a good, a good product. Now, 100 and I can't even remember how much it was for three days at Mugello last year. But I think, what was it? 150, 200 euro for three days at Magello. The place was empty. You're not looking at Valentino Rossi. And unfortunately for Donna, they've made their entire product Rossi and, and Marquez. Well, it's not. That's not the product. They are part of the product. If anything, they are Honda's product. They're Yamaha's product. Dorna's product is we make motorcycles go really, really fast. Do you want to watch this? Because they're an event business, theoretically. They are an event business. Their whole goal is to make partnerships with people, sell tickets to events, and have people watch bikes go really fast. So if you overcharge for that experience because you've somehow made the personalities the product and not the actual product the key to the business, you're in trouble, you're in hot water. Um, and Which is why we see Dorna do things like go to Kazakhstan and build racetracks. And they give contracts to build racetracks. And the people who build the racetracks are in cahoots with Dorna. It's where the money comes from, right? That's Mm -hmm. logical. So while all that's well and good, your key product that you sell is not selling because you've made it all about the riders instead of the bikes. Formula One, for example. Formula One's product is cars go really fast. It's not Lewis Hamilton. It's not Michael Schumacher. It never was. That was the product of each of the factories in the competition. And that's how they marketed it. And that's why it worked. Because at the end of the day, the product was cars go fast. That's all our product is. Bikes go really fast. And then it's up to each individual factory. Who pays Dorna to be there, by the way, Mm -hmm. to sell the person riding it? That's sort of how that should look in a linear way and it doesn't it doesn't look like that now and that's really upsetting um you know but and again when you look at BSB Stuart Higgs has got it down pat he knows exactly what he's doing right he knows how to develop teams not just riders he knows how to get teams to come and and work with him how to come and be in the sport um and then as an offset of that he gets the opportunity to help young riders develop so when they move on to a world superbike competition they can go i did that with all with with actual facts he did right yeah. so that's mm. that's where Dorner is kind of missing the mark i think and it's the product the product is great but sell me the product not the personalities it's not their job yeah and I, that's kind of the loss
1: i was complaining uh, i went to silverstone last year as i do pretty much every year and you know it costs more to park on the sunday than it you know it's more expensive to park at silverstone just the car parking ticket i'm talking about than it is to go to a whole weekend of bsb
2: there is a reason for that though so silverstone had a little bit of financial troubles in the last couple of years and in order to save themselves from completely shutting down they privatized all the car parks and office buildings, yeah. so well, office every, buildings everything, is, everything ridiculous. is
1: egregiously expensive at silverstone i mean it's yeah. as you say it's a couple of hundred quid you know by the time you've got a decent seat on the sunday you know, 20 quid of burger work? and chips. It's just ridiculous.
2: It's insane. And Silverstone MotoGP, right? I think Cordwell Park was two weeks later, had twice, or whatever it was, it had more attendees than MotoGP, Cordwell Park. Yeah. Because the product is good. The tickets were cheap. All the vendors at the event were happy to sell hot dogs and hamburgers and beers the way it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're charging this extreme amount, then how about your local vendors and all of that has a huge offset so i don't know it's a it's a very i mean if i could fix it i would but in the meantime i'll just have to talk about why people are leaving and why we can't find decent
3: sponsors
1: i, I mean you've told us you know your ideas about where you know in your opinion the sport's going wrong in terms of how it's marketing the product I mean, are you, are you hopeful that somebody's there that's kind of figuring this out or listening to what people are saying and a. Going to address some of these issues because as you say it is startling to me that you know we're still talking about Valentina Rossi when he's been retired for what three years as of this season isn't it and you know it's I think crazy, I think we really. know
2: I think we know nobody's listening to us as by the fan survey which said are you in favor of sprint races and then two weeks before releasing the result Lorna goes we're doing sprint races and the results from the survey said actually no that's not what we're interested in. So I am always hopeful. And I think in my position, I in my personal sort of succession to becoming who I am, I struggle a lot because I'm not scared to say actually this is wrong. Um and it it doesn't do me well. It doesn't get me favours. It doesn't win me friends. But in saying that, I love the sport. People who are critical of the sport are critical because they love it. Mm. They're not critical because they want to shut it down or they hate it or no you're critical because you can see holes, you can see problems. Um, You know, I I see a lot of problems in the sport, and I really hope whoever comes into the comms role, uh, whoever replaces Manel as well, kind of listens to these things. I think Manel's been in that role for a very long time. He's done some great things for the sport, and he's struggled with others like anyone does in any corporate role. Um, But I know his son's very close to that role as well, so we'll see kind of what this next generation brings Mm. from one one name to the next. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I struggle with it because it often feels like there's too many fingers in the pot and they all are the same. There is no challenge. Um, And when I look at really great corporations and really great businesses, they have people who challenge each other. They look for the best. That's what they do, not just yes men. And that's something I struggle with.
1: One of our questions, Jim, in fact, it was Jim's question, but was the whole kind of quality versus quantity thing and this relentless drive to keep adding races, as you say, in some, well, well, not odd places, but odd in terms of the context of where the race is held in terms of the local audience and fan base and so on. So, Kazakhstan obviously is a good example of that. So, uh, I mean, are you, my personal view is I think there are too many races. I think, you know, logistically, lifestyle wise for all the teams, you know just the sheer logistics of getting all this stuff around the world so much is not so great and I think it kind of waters down the championship a little bit by having 20 odd races now I I personally would prefer if we were back in the old days of sort of 16 rounds and that's your championship but maybe I'm old-fashioned I mean I am 50 years old so that might be rose tinted glasses a bit I
3: don't think you're old I don't
2: think you're old-fashioned at all I think the, the thing is right if this was if the quality of the product was so good that we could as human beings justify 21 or 22 races a year, then we would. Then we would. We would have no problem going, do you know what, I can get the sponsorship money for that like that because I know a million sponsors that are keen to sponsor an extra six races this year. But that's not the reality. Look at the world we live in. Look at what's going on around us. Half of us can't afford a loaf of bread, let alone pay our electricity bill. Um, You know, asking people for more money to go to more races, it's hard and I understand why more races have been added. If we look at what happened in 2020, 2021, there was a lot of self-isolating. There was a lot of difficult logistical problems to get these races happening. And I credit Dawn for that. I think they did a fantastic job at making sure the championship happened. They really, really did. And that's a credit to them. Yeah. However, in 2023, adding an extra couple of races For some extra money that we're not quite sure where it's come from or why your nephew who's in charge of this and building this and is the safety officer for this is now this. It's all a bit convoluted and it makes people distrust the product. But they are in desperate need to fill up the bucket, which is why they added sprint races, because you know who's probably going to sponsor it? Tissot. Tissot will have a sponsored race every Saturday. It, I'm not, it may not be Tissot, but mm, you understand yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, it will be yeah. some high-end brand that will have exclusive sponsorship rights for 22 races of the year. And that, you know, I think in 2016, Nero Giardini, which is an Italian fashion company, sponsored the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, And for them to sponsor it that weekend was about 2.5 million euros just for the weekend, you know, just for the naming rights, just for the promotional models. And I think they had about 20 guests. I only know this because I attended (laughs) sort of as part of this facility. Um, And to think about it, that's a lot of money to spend for four days. So if you have the naming rights for 22 races of the year, that's a lot of cash. Um, So it's obvious what they've done. And again, I understand filling up the bucket, but your product's not there your product is struggling. You know, teams are struggling. We don't know half the team's names. They're collapsing left, right, and centre. And if you look at your other product, which is World Superbike, yes, it's a World Superbike is a very, very good product of late, very good product. But they're also not gearing any more sponsors. They're also not gearing any more, you know, free airtime. The audience isn't expanding, even though the product is great. So what are you going to do to change that? And I Mm. think both of those sports, to be owned by the same people, while well, being direct competitors to each other sharing sponsors sharing riders it's it's hard it's like i said too many fingers in the pots. it it's, really is
1: i'm sorry Jim. you got to get word and address somewhere because I, I do <laughs> nothing to talk but i i well no it's me I, it kind of strikes me in a little way that formula one and motor gp have kind of switched in a way because a few years ago I, th- I used to think that Dorna was quite good and quite progressive on the social media front, whereas Formula One at that time, under the you know, the iron grip of Bernie Eccleston, was famously bad at that sort of thing. And they kind of feel as yeah. if they've completely switched in the last five years, to me.
2: I, I would agree. I would agree. And I think the best thing that happened to Formula One was Bernie Eccleston. And the best thing that happened to Formula One was Bernie Eccleston leaving. Yeah. And the name, Eccleston, leaving. The entire name. There is no... Left over, right there is no uh sort of institute to uphold there's no my father's son or my father's daughter put it that way yeah. and that's that can seem like quite a horrible thing to say but we're talking about a business here okay we're not growing olives and tomatoes we're talking about a global business um so with that in mind you'll always do what's right for your own won't yeah. you? that's it really- logic it's logical
1: always reading about oh, nepo okay. babies in
0: the news these days aren't we so um <laughs> jim you wanted see, to ask a question a hard, about spain oh, yeah i sorry. i want to kind of get to i got other questions but this came to my mind as you're talking about it. i know there's this focus that you have now it's you're constantly talking about the product the product the product and i get where you're coming from here i've opined before that because dorna owns world superbike and moto gp that world superbike should be a winter series. It doesn't begin until November, runs sort of Equatorial or Southern Hemisphere, and then finishes off with a few races in Europe. And as soon as, say, April comes around, it switches and now it's MotoGP. So now I have this, I'm not split between weekends deciding what I want to watch, whether it's World Superbike or whatever, because some races happen on the same weekend, although I'll be at there in different time zones. But what really gets me is you're charging me 199 euro for the feed and I can't get World Superbike too?
3: I'm a fan of racing.
0: I want both. Why can't you give me both? That's a lot of money. I
3: see.
2: It is a lot of money. And the thing is, they have the same social media teams and they all Mm -hmm. move around in the same building in Barcelona. And I see your point. I do. However, the product, again, World Superbike, not MotoGP. World Superbike is a stock bike. It's not MotoGP. Mm -hmm. They're not the same. So, although it might be all well and good to say, like, we can run it in winter, we can run it in the Southern Hemisphere, like, 100%, we should be going to places like South Africa, we should be going to places like the McLaren Motorsport Park in New Zealand. I mean, don't quote me on that, I don't know if it's up and ready for it, but you know (laughs) what I mean? There are places that we should be, there are places we should be going. In saying that, if one company owns two sports, how about they made them both more affordable so one weekend MotoGP is in the UK, let's say, and World Superbike is in Spain. You don't have to contemplate spending another 150 euro a month later to go to the opposite sport that you're also into, right? So that's all about television and broadcasting. That's all about fans on the site, merchandising, fuel, um, cost of parking, accommodation. So theoretically, if you spent 200 euros in the space of three months to go to two different competitions, you would be pleased with that. That is a good result. That, is, For me, that's like an average two Friday nights at the bar, okay? I'm not saying I'm an alcoholic, but that's where <laughs> I put my money, let's yeah, say. I hear you. So if, if that's what it's going to be, that's what it has to be. And the thing is, they are two different sports. Yes, they operate the same kind of way. Yes, we have crew chiefs and wheels and engines, and but stocks aren't as fast as MotoGP. The whole point of MotoGP is to be the pinnacle. And I always sort of, so my dad was always into Superbike, never MotoGP, but my dad was into Superbike. Superbike was the poor man's sport. It really was. It was like my dad turned up to World Superbikes at Sydney Motorsport Park with his Jigsaw and he's cheering, he's having the best time ever because he can afford the same bike that whoever else is riding is on. You know, so that it's, it is about understanding demographics and affordability and all of those kind of things come into play. But well, Superbike, like I said, the product's also not as good. I mean, it is, it's, it's great racing, but the product's not as good if you're having to pay 250,000 euros to compete. That's not it's not how the product should work. It should be the other way around.
3: Mm, you know, right.
2: great broadcasting, great visibility, great to be seen, come and race for us. We're an easy sport to get into. We are a pathway, but you can make a great career. You could be the next Ron Hasbro here. That's what it should be, but it's mm. not. And that's, sad and again they're two different sports but if they're owned by the same people then there should be a concession to enjoy both i completely agree with
0: you i also think that they need to follow formula one in this one instance a rewrite of the rule book because honestly formula one kind of went backwards with the aerodynamics of the cars they went back to the Mm. ground effects under the car the car under the air under the car makes the car faster but now another car can be right behind the other car we get closer racing. So therefore we have closer passing. We have the opposite happening here in MotoGP. If there's the cost. So why do we have to have shapeshifters? Why do we have to have a whole shot device? Why do we have to have aerodynamics on? Why do we spend all that time and money in a wind tunnel? And people we've talked to on the show have said it's the pinnacle. It's about building the fastest motorcycle to go around this track. I'm like, What are we here for? Are we here to watch racing that's good? Are we here for an engineering exercise? I could be either one. Okay, I'm fine with them both because I think the technology in the bike is really cool. But you better talk to me about that technology. Why Simon Crafar does not have a a snippet that they put somewhere in between warm-up on a Sunday and before racing starts or or in the little gap between the MotoGP race of Simon Crafar explaining to you how something works. How does the whole shot device work? How does the squatting of the rear work? How does the semi-automatic gearbox work? All of these things I think would be phenomenally cool to promote your product. Like, we are the only motorcycles that have yeah. this. Yet it's no, I silent. I it's silent. You and It's like... That and, you know, the other thing that's coming to me that I think is really is these carbon neutral fuels, the alternative fuel, which is, this is fabulous. Cool.
2: This, is the, cool. this is the stuff that should be spoken about. This is really cool stuff. Like, this doesn't happen elsewhere. And we're kind of leading the way in it, which is for us personally, if you've ever been in our paddock, it's like we did something good. Um, <laughs> This is cool stuff to talk about. I completely agree with you. And the thing is, it has to be content that speaks to all different people but is understood by the same group you know it 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 doesn't have to be difficult to understand and you know what if I'm going to see an ugly bike on track like um Bassanini's bike with the shark things last year what was that it was the ugliest looking bike Mm -hmm. if I have to look at ugly things at least tell me why they work because it doesn't look pretty that's not what a penali looks like tell me why I'm looking at it like this so I understand why you were doing this, and then the next week they were gone anyway. I'm like, for God's sake, like it's all test and error. But give me, you know, after the race or between the race, and you know, I understand why they don't as well. Um, that's a whole lot of confidentiality and how things mm. work and why we can't say that. But if you want to talk about the basics of things, absolutely. And I know Simon Craig did used to have um quite a few little um like infographics and and some conversations around that that I think were shot in 2020 or 2021. Um, so hopefully we'll see something like that <clears throat> this year. is a really good orator. He mm-hmm. explains things really well. He's a nice fellow as well. I mean, I, I won't hold it against him that he's Kiwi. So I think, he's, <laughs> you know, he is, he is the perfect person to sort of lead those discussions.
0: Yeah. So that, that was like, for me, in the 90s, Formula One here in the US was on what was called Speed Channel at the time. And they had Steve Matchett, who was an ex-mechanic in the pit lane of Formula One. He would do a thing called a chalk talk, or he would find something. And I, I yeah. this one sticks in my head was the mass dampener that Renault had. And he explained to you that it's a hockey puck in a can with fluid on either side of it. And because it moves up and down in the can, it dampens out the vibration in the front wing. Yeah, that that is at everybody's level. Everybody can understand that or at least conceptualize what he's talking about and we don't have any of that here and it's in you know think of it is i can take a guess at some how some of these systems work on these bikes but i don't know exactly and we don't have to get to a proprietary point where we're dishing out secrets but there's a general idea of like if you lower the rear suspension the bike doesn't wheelie because it's a longer wheelbase and it's all about how you have a pivot point and where the force and the torque is on that arm I think those are easy enough things it's all for people gravity. It's all, gas. It's all it's everybody gravity. Everybody
2: understands gravity. It's not hard to understand gravity. Just make it interesting. Do you know what I mean? Just make yeah. it interesting. Like your product has quickly turned into an engineering-based product. Mm. It is. Like, you know, per- personalities come and go, but this is technology and development. Tell us about it. Like, you know, it's not my moped. I don't know how it works. Tell me. Give me the information. So you, you are right. I completely agree with you
1: let's um segue into a few other areas of the way the sport is perceived um both from a positive and a negative standpoint but i mean maddie you and certainly simon your husband are you know famous for raising topics that perhaps you know some of the powers that be at dawn would prefer are kept under wraps let's say but you know my view is that motorsport and certainly motorcycle racing it's kind of a like an apex predator sport so that's kind of the dna i think you know it's because it, you need that to win um, and that applies to men and women I and mean, you know there are more females coming into the sport but we'll talk about that but so if that's the essential dna of the way the sport works and the competitors in the sport operate let's talk about things like rider safety protocols for example and the management of rider behavior Um, because this is something that jim and i have talked about a lot it comes up a lot you know and it can be all sorts yeah. of different things it can be people swiping you know doing a Dennis on two chop and taking you know causing a plane crash type accident to happen or it could be people mm. dawdling around on the racing line in qualifying or it could be people falling off clearly getting injured and then they're out in the next session so do you see any winter change coming because it's been a topic of hot discussion for quite a while
2: I think what's really interesting about this, particularly when we look at things like concussion, um, long-term effects, when we see sort of what the body experiences 10 to 15, 20 years after a really big head trauma um, and constant minor head traumas, things like this, is that weirdly the place that's leading the way is Motorcycling Australia. (laughs) Motorcycling Australia and uh, British superbikes, are very much leading the way in terms of technology and development to prevent these things from happening. you know, I, I know that just this week, Martin Port's son, who Martin Port is, I think, the general manager at Motorcycling Australia, his son is Jamie, he competes in an ASBK. Um, you know, Jamie's been told to take six or seven weeks or eight weeks off of racing from a head trauma accident he had four and a half months ago. Uh, he can't see, he can't drive, he has blurred vision, he can't write his name. Um, and he's only about oh, he's younger than me, he'd be about 18, 17 years old. So they're definitely leading the way in terms of we need to think long-term what the effects are going to be on these kids. Um, And then, you know, we have opposition to that and people will say, well, that's the way it's always been and they're fine and, like, look at him, he's fine and, you know, he's 65 years old and it didn't happen to him. I'm like, yeah, right. But when you talk to these older athletes one-to-one, they're not in the best condition they're not as happy as they might be. They really do struggle remembering things like their name, their address, where they are. Um, and just because you can switch that off for a short period of time, for example, to do an interview, doesn't mean that it's it, it comes and goes and it comes in waves. And I think it's really important that we protect people and people will say in motorsport, well, you can't expect them to sit for six weeks out. You absolutely can. This is called having a pathway for other athletes to step in when you need to that this is all comes back to what is what is the pathway to motorsport and I say it all the time no no parent feels that good putting their kids into a sport that is inherently unsafe right if it's going to be inherently unsafe it needs to be safe it needs to be you know managed safely and I think you know even MotoGP at Phillip Island last year Moto2 what was that what was that? He had a broken. Jorge uh, Navarro had Navarro. a broken femur. A, a what do you call the artery in your leg? But
1: femoral artery, wouldn't it?
2: Femoral, femoral, yeah. snapped femoral artery, sitting on the inside of a corner with his helmet off. But we didn't call a red flag because he was on a, a, a corner where people hardly ever crash, even though a crash had just happened there, literally thirty seconds before.
3: um
2: <laughs> and we all know why they didn't call the red flag it's because it was the southern hemisphere and we need to get those tv figures in that's not here or there so for me i think there's a lot of things going on that need to be addressed i know that motorcycling australia are testing like little stickers that you stick on your helmet and then they can tell you about the the crash impact on the head um and sort of it'll give you a more specific concussion area without having to do a ct scan and these are this is all things that are in in pre-development right they're not long-term solutions but just being able to add a little bit of technology to what we do to protect us is important and you know we see more concussions nowadays because of things like airbags back in the old days you didn't have an airbag so what did you do break your collarbone you didn't hit your head you just you just landed here and that was that you sit with a broken arm for six weeks Mm -hmm. um so we've seen a rise in concussion and people think that it's been great because we've seen, you know, a decrease in broken bones and a decrease in rider health management in terms of bones and osteos and whatnot. Um, but actually it's, it's been far worse in terms of head trauma. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things changing. There's a lot of development and research being done into it. I just don't think it, it matters as much to some people as other things do, which is usually TV broadcast time sponsorship dollars, um, which is concerning which is why you see an athlete back in the next session you know i think alex marquez at herreth was it
1: uh, oh, barcelona I right so i think it was like... barcelona the famous one wasn't it Bar- because um yeah uh, although i've got a great deal of time for the team manager of in lcr you know he came on uh, and said oh yeah he did bash his head but it wasn't a bad wasn't a bad one sort of thing or he might have had he a mild came concussion to yeah. Something he like came that.
2: to the debrief and told me he was concussed. He told all of the media, oh, I feel so concussed. I was vomiting before I came up a few. And he still went out and raced the next day. And mm. I was like, we published that. Of course we did. We published that. And it was like, that is a straight-up concussion. You cannot tell me that that's not. Okay, what if he, I think uh, Simon, Simon, Simon knows this like the back of his hand. He can tell you all about it. There was another rider a couple of years ago that had a concussion in FP2 or FP1, I think it was, and he went out to race and he couldn't see. He was blind. He had to stop mid race and take himself off of track because he physically couldn't see what was happening. And again, these blokes are going at 350 kilometers an hour. Like, really? How did he, how on earth would he have been fit to go out in the first place? And asking someone a question like, what's your name and where are you, is not a long term test. And also, CAT scans don't show things immediately. So we know that that won't give us the results that we actually need. Hence why we get the result we want and Bob's your uncle, you're out on track.
1: Do you so... do you subscribe to the view, or I have an opinion, that I think the teams themselves and certainly some of the entourages around some of the riders bear a bit of responsibility. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, one of the most hideous things I watched on TV last year was watching Nakagami trying to take his glove off in practice in Mategi. And it was almost, it was almost yeah. like torture porn, you know, to watch that. It, it was hideous, and I was sat there thinking, why is somebody not saying to this guy, you might screw your hands so bad, you'd be out, you know, you know, period. As someone,
3: you
2: know? as someone who's had several skin grafts in her lifetime, I sent Taka a message that night, going, "Do not go out. You will need a fucking skin graft. Sorry, you will need a skin graft." Lo yeah. and behold, he needed a skin graft on his hand, didn't he?
3: Yeah. Like.
2: I don't know if, you, if that that affects your nerves. That's obviously quite deep into your skin. Um, that's a long recovery period as well. It takes a long time to get movement back in the hand. And I just thought to myself, the the thing is, nobody's gonna tell an athlete no, let alone themselves, right? If you're determined to win and do something, no matter how many broken bones, skin grafts, or concussions you might have had, you're still going to be the one to go, I'm doing this, I'm going. Um so, yes, I do believe teams have their some responsibility to prevent this. And I do think what the paddock needs more than anything is not just a clinic, a mobile, but perhaps a mental health facility. And I know everyone's going to go, what, that doesn't make sense. It absolutely does. They spend nine months of the year away from home. They're under extreme pressure, extreme stress, fame that I don't think they ever really accounted for. Um, you absolutely need someone to sort of and, and the point of a therapist is not to uh, uh, is to not validate your feelings. It is to give you the realization that perhaps what you are doing is wrong, and you need to stop and consider some other options. You know, it's not to make you feel good, and it is to make you realize what you're feeling, and sort of put you in a place that goes, "You cannot do this. It's bad for your health." Um, sort of give you strategies on how to cope mentally with what's going on around you. So I do, I think that that's a, a solution um, and yes I completely agree with you that the teams do have an onus and, and a responsibility to their riders you know that they do yeah. I mean look at again barbio at Assen. why did they send him back out they knew that the bike was stopped and they were hoping it would rain he could have killed himself but yeah. no one's gonna in his own mind he's not gonna say no he's an athlete
1: although he was but shaking his head were... a fair bit when he went down to pit lane on his way back out so he wasn't very happy wasn't about pleased. it, I don't think. No. He
2: wasn't exactly. But he wouldn't say no. He no. he knew something was wrong, but he's not gonna say no. Yeah. And that's a problem. Mm. That's a really big problem. So I I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. I do believe it takes, you know, the people I, who are in governing positions to care, but I can't be the one to make that call. I, I can, can only talk
1: about it. I can sort of think of a way that the sport might approach trying to solve this problem. I don't know what your thought on this as the next race would be, Jim, but throughout MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3, why, uh, particularly now we've got sprint races in MotoGP, so we've got a lot of races, why don't they allow riders to drop, say, three or four events per year so that if they're uh, injured, you you know, somebody can say to them or they can say to themselves that I can miss this race, I can go and get well, and it's not going to affect my championship because everybody gets to drop a certain number of rounds and that could then feed into your idea about what you're saying about bringing some other guys up from the other classes you know so a Moto2 guy gets a chance to get on a MotoGP yeah. bike and somebody replaces him from Moto3 that kind of thing I mean I know money is obviously a big part of this and contracts but that's there must all be a solution it, that's
2: all it is and I agree with you that is the solution that is 100% the solution all the test riders or whoever's available right yeah but money talks and that's that is what it is. That's all it is. And you know what? The faster you go, the more you win, the more likely you are to crash. Hence why we see people like Jack Miller, Mark Marquez, who tend to crash a fair bit, but they also know that there's big sponsorship bonuses on the line for every podium they get. So they're gonna do it. Right? I think what's what's Jack's favorite quote when in doubt flat out? Like, <laughs> just do it. He's he is quite he's the definition of winner or bin it. Like mm-hmm. and I don't think he means to be by any means. But um, we know that there's big sponsorship on the line and no one's going to, if you feel unwell but you've got €250,000 on the line, are you going to not turn up to work? Like that is ultimately what it is. And that's why I truly believe it's far more of a mental health question than it is a clinical mobile question. You need people there who are going to give you the support, okay, and help you make sound decisions about your health. Alongside your work, I think that's really important, and it's not there at the moment. And you know, a mental health facility would be great for everyone in MotoGP, genuinely, because you know you forget what your own children look like sometimes. Mm. So, I, I feel like that's the answer. I feel like that's at least a start. Yes, absolutely, and I think it should be. You know, you have to go and see this mental health professional once a week, once a race weekend. Go and see them. Maybe they make the call. Maybe they make the decision for you. Maybe people will say you're giving too much power to mental health physicians, like, you know, physicians. But based on their doctor's notes, everything that they have provided to them and the mental state of the person in front of them, who better would there be to make that decision for
0: them? Yeah, I'm biased,
2: yeah.
0: You know? I, I'm wholeheartedly yeah. behind and the whole mental. extreme. No, I don't think it's extreme at all. I think the whole idea of the mental health issue needs to be addressed, especially with the Moto3 kids. Because they are kids, Uh they're kids, you know, they're coming in at 15 and a half, 16. I mean, we've reasoned to 18, but that still doesn't mean that you understand the world, nor the money, nor the fame, nor everything else that you're going to do. I don't care how your parents have raised you. You are going to have difficulties with this. There's no way around it. And
2: I think that, you know, Things like a child protection officer wouldn't go unheard of either, which every other competition in the world seems to have, but I can't find the one at MotoGP. Just, you know, I mean, for example, Tom Brady was not a child when he was assaulted, but imagine he was. Mm. Imagine he was. You know, it's things like that. Um, So it, it is, this is a big kettle of fish. And we, I mean, we started this conversation in concussion and now we're like, children need protection in the workplace because they are, they're children at work. And they are struggling with things like financially, they're not making big money. They're living in trucks. You know, they say something to the media that gets published and it makes them look bad. They're scared to talk. They don't know how to handle the media. And this is sort of why I started my consultancy business because you've got a lot of youth, a lot of young people that are like, I don't know. It's not. They don't. They're, they're not going to say, I don't know. They don't know, period. They're learning. And every mistake for them feels heavier than it would for an adult who's, you know, gone through these experiences before, knows how to turn a good situation on its head and, and make the best out of the worst. Um, and there's a lot that I, I honestly feel like if you're going to get people involved in the sport, you want competitors to keep coming and paying the money and turning it up and it's, it is that kind of thing that matters because, again, what mum and dad feels good about putting their child into a sport that doesn't care, particularly one that is inherently dangerous. Um, yeah. And it's always the people you have to convince. Yeah, dad, dad's a little bit easier to convince than mum. If you really want kids in sport, you have to be safe enough for them to be there, no matter how inherently dangerous it is. And I know that because of the work I do, not only with teenage athletes, generally, it's with their mum. It is with their mum. <laughs> like, they're the people you talk to, you encourage, you give this feeling of safety to. And let them know that you're there and, and there's there's a reason for them to be doing what they're doing etc etc so it is it all boils down to that like health child protection it is so important and i feel like it's heavily overlooked
1: you've kind of semi-answered what the next thing i was going to raise and this again it's a little perhaps a little bit of a contentious one and i don't want to sort of ask the question in a sort of a fist of my mouth kind of a way but you know one of the things that came out of the fan survey i believe was you know revelation you know getting underrepresented groups into the sport i mean which you know that wasn't exactly a revelatory thought but um in terms of promotion and protection of and and i mean protection of underrepresented groups so uh, obviously females and i would say for example people of, of races that aren't highly um represented in the sport for example yep how does the sport or is the sport going about this in a way that maintains essential ethos of the sport which is a meritocracy you know the best the, the cream rises to the top and we avoid sort of positive discrimination and this sort of modern nonsense as I would sort of class some of it yeah. I mean this it yeah. seems to me like a grassroots thing and I guess this is where you come in as a facilitator and a mentor with what you're trying to do Maddie. so I, I, it's interesting to know what your thought on that is because it's obviously a bit of a politically hot potato kind of thing to talk about but no it's it's
2: not I agree with you I agree with you completely and it's like I said at the start of this podcast you know we live in a world now where everyone's got an opinion and that's great I've always got an opinion I am the most egotistical woman you will ever meet I cannot help it I am in the media it is my job it is literally my job yeah however in saying that I feel like particularly in MotoGP, women are particularly you know, misrepresented. And I say misrepresented because we're represented by the wrong people. Yes, we have a women's council in the FIM. Yes, that's lovely and fantastic. But the people that I would turn to to ask elected into their position, they don't come from a background of business or marketing or strategizing or HR and people and culture. And when I look at motorsport, you need to stop hiring from within and you need to hire from without, without, sorry, from the outside. You need to hire from, you know, big corporations that have turned these crappy little bad reputation companies into really well-respected businesses. And I think hiring someone because they happen to be someone else's wife plays against that. And, you know, I can put my hand up to that and say, as Simon Patterson's wife, I have not been afforded any opportunity. In fact, any opportunity that I look at that could potentially clash with our business, I turn down. I've been able to turn away or I've had to turn opportunities away because of my last name, as opposed to take them up because of my, my name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And people will say, yeah, whatever. No, it's not true. It is true. It's completely true. I'd be earning a lot more money if I just exploited my name a little bit more. Um, but coming back to grassroots... That's what matters. You know, you need to let children know and parents know and minority groups know that they are represented and they are taken seriously. I think earlier in the year, I published a piece in October, September, October, um, that circulated around Tom Amos and it circulated around sort of sexual harassment and assault on the party.
3: Yeah.
2: And out of the responses I had, and I'm gonna I'm going to use the word misogynistic, right, because it is the only way to describe it people go well of course she'll say that and wasn't she a grid girl and wasn't she this and wasn't she that it's like yes I was and now that I'm a little bit older I actually didn't appreciate the way I was being treated at the time and I didn't appreciate it then but I did it because it put me in the room with the people I thought I wanted to be like and it paid my bills so again I brought these concerns to who I would consider my representative in sport and they told me Well, it's never happened to me, so I doubt it happens. So (laughs) when we're talking about representation in sport, who do I go to? Who does an employee at a factory go to? Who does a young athlete go to? It is hard. And when we look at grassroots levels, you know, from road racing in Northern Ireland to NZ Superbike, there are people there that you suddenly go to. There are child protection officers. There are um, people in culture officers safety officers things like that they are they're so necessary and back to what we were talking about before when you have young people who are working young people at work um you have minority groups at work you have people who are generally underrepresented in motorsport as a whole of course they need somewhere to go to that only makes sense Mm. um and i disappointed by that personally I feel disappointed that I asked for a comment on that piece I didn't get one from any of the organizers Um, I feel disappointed that I went to the FIM women's conference in December and I was told by the president that the Spanish and Italians aren't as bad as they used to be and if I've got a problem I can go to these people and that's great I've done that and I've been met with well it's not happened to me so I doubt it happens and then the follow-up question was well if it wasn't you who was it you're not making me feel safe telling you the problem Mm. I'm not going to tell you the problem because you're yelling at me or accusing me of making it up. Like, why would I make that up? For what reason? I just want to go to work safely like everyone else. And I don't mean me myself personally, but you know, I think anybody just wants to go to work and it's really something that I don't know how you can run a business in 2023 without considering this. I really don't. Mm. And I think, The way that they've considered it is gone is we've just put people in the role to appease the question of are you doing this or not they've not put people in the role that are effective at what they're doing that are not making any real change other than tweeting occasionally how great is it to be a woman in sport like that's not that's not what i'm after it's really not
1: Mm. and i think it's it's interesting that you highlight this is not just about riders this is about mechanics, all the team personnel, journalists, caterers, everybody that's in the in the yeah. pit lane. You know, the, the town, not village now, is it? it's more like a town that travels around the world. It's
2: 2000, it's 2,000 people. We travel together every week. Like, there's no one that we don't know. If I don't know their name, I've spoken to them. Like, we all know each other. Um, And it is, it's just more than, it's, it is a village. It is a lot of people, and it requires some kind of intervention on that and I don't know who to turn to I don't know if that's a daughter problem or an FIM problem I certainly know it's not not a problem because it's you know but it's something that would affect them too yeah. because they're at work I it's mean so- I
1: suppose you're shining a light on these issues so is your husband and so are numerous other people in the pit lane as well yeah. that report on this stuff so I mean it would be interesting to talk to you again you know in a year or two years and see if there's been some positive movement on some of these issues Muddy.
2: we'll see I hope so we'll I do hope so and the thing is again it's I'm critical cool. But I'm critical because I care. Yeah. Not because I'm a bully. Like I care. I yeah, it's want constructive, to be a good Constructive wife. criticism. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Let me let me ask you this, Maddie. Um, I can't remember her last name, but you'll know who I'm talking about. Jenny, she's the suspension technologist for high HRC. Anderson. She's former what was it, Rich? Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah.
1: Jenny Anderson, I think, isn't it? Jenny
0: Anderson. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I I'm terrible with names. So I would love if you could sit down with her and have a talk, I think that would be fascinating hearing her side of how all this works, but more to the point with that. My real question is how many more girls, women could you get interested in motorsport or the science or the engineering that she's doing? If you promoted her, right? Like if, if, if Dorna as itself, Says, well, it can't be Dorna, I guess, because you are right. She's not the product of Dorna; she's the
3: yeah.
2: she's
0: product of HRC, which they would—they—that's a cultural thing that's never going to the, happen. But
2: H R HR, HRC, first of all, would never promote one of their engineers internally because that means that they could be headhunted, right? So let's get this sure,
0: straight. okay, so yes.
2: This is this is genuinely this is genuinely where it starts to get complicated in terms of media and marketing. So we look back. Let's take Formula One for a great example. What have we got? We have got girls on track. Is that one of them? I think that's what it's called. Um,
3: yeah. We have yes. mm-hmm.
2: some really, really good fan pages run by some very switched on, very happy women. Um, I think one of them's called Females in Motorsports run by Helena Hicks. She's just got this huge community, huge. We're talking huge. Like I've never, I didn't realise so many women were into Formula 1, genuinely. She's built this huge community. Um, you know, we've got, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it at all but there are there are these initiatives for engineers who have been picked by the FIA we're talking like smart women who have been picked up by the FIA to go to year nine student schools and say are you interested in mechanics what do you want to do you know you don't have to be a formula one and this is the thing right the end goal shouldn't be being at McLaren or being at Ferrari the end goal should be having a genuine interest in mechanics and then maybe because you you worked really hard to be a good mechanic or a good engineer, you got this job that you was a dream. You know, you had tunnel vision on it, but you you always knew it was going to be competitive and hard, and you did it. So if we're talking about getting people interested. I mean, look at what they did in Aragon last year. Angelucci, I think it was Angelucci, was an all-female Moto3 run team with Maria Herrera, oh, yeah. and they ran in the Moto3 event. Hmm. Now she did an incredible job. She managed to get herself an agency. She got all of her own sponsors. She put that together. She did fantastic. Got very little coverage over the weekend. Very little.
0: That was yeah. terrible. We did our best to, to give it, it to sweet. give it props because it was something phenomenal, right?
2: But the thing is, even if even if someone comes dead last right? The fact that they've put the energy in, they've built the team, they've found these people and they've managed to get a working bike with a fairly good athlete because Maria Herrera is, she's badass, man, out on track, that deserves its accolades. You know, you're always going to have an opposition of very misogynistic people that go, oh, they were shit, like who cares? You'll always have that. It's background noise. But in order to be successful, you need to shine a light on people who are making it happened. And it, it upset me that it kind of went under the radar. And then what they did work for it was just take a photo of all the women in the paddock outside of the hospitality and say, it's great to be a woman. Like that's not kind of, no, that should have been in-house. Like, who are you? Who do you work for? Usually? Why are you here? how did you come into you know meeting Angelouki and, and what sent you out on here? And how did you get into that? That should have been one-to-one brilliant content and it went completely missed. totally missed under the radar and it's just it's things like that
0: so one of the things about moto america that i I don't i'm sure you probably know this but they have an indian twins class and it's all female but what they do is and i think this is super cool and it's one of the things that moto america does not promote but i think that they should do much more in this is every lady who gets the uh necessary sponsorship and has the credentials Mm -hmm. to race is ship the bike in pieces. They have to put that bike together and then they come to the track and they have to work on their bike. They work on their setup, their suspension, their gearing, everything. There are Indian techs who are there to help them if necessary and ensure that everything is mechanically sound and safe to race on. But these, these women all are doing this on their own And i think it's fantastic yet it's sort of glossed over and pushed to the side like that's a great story
2: but you'll get opposition right you'll always get opposition which is well motorcycle racing doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman because it's all about your physical technique that's like yes I understand what you're saying, but that's like saying the women's surf league and the men's surf league are the same thing. Completely different battles, okay? Woman against a wave is different to a man against a wave. We have different physical structure. We look different when we surf. We look different when we ride bikes. Our strength is stored in different places. So I I, I hear you. I honestly feel like the series is screaming for a women's talent cup.
3: Oh, okay? that'd be Instead fantastic. Of promoting
2: one it's, it's the way to do it. Instead of promoting one female racer in Moto 3 and one female racer in Moto E, how about you get Anna Carrasco and Maria Herrera to lead a females driven women's talent cup in Moto GP? Same amount of races as Moto E, right?
0: One would just put them on electric you bikes. You could do because it's like it's a win-win there right no no (laughs) okay okay that's
2: too much marketing but that's okay no that's too much marketing we've already got electric fuels electric bikes we don't need electric fuels electric bikes with electric women like that's just too much fair but (laughs) (laughs) but you could just have you know that that's the potential You you know i think the fim told me in december that they only have 15 licenses registered to women at the moment 15. Wow. So if you lose one, if you lose one woman, you've lost six point seven percent. That is a huge number. Like, create, create the talent cup. No one has. No one is saying it has to be good. All right. And we can look at the W series and go. That's what not to do. We Mm. know where we can make improvements. We know how to execute a good a good event. Right. If you did six races, maybe two fifties. We're not even talking fast bikes. Okay. Make it simple. You've got Junior Oceania Cup in Australia. You've got Asia Talent Cup. You've got British Talent Cup. Have a American women's Talent Cup, Cup. now too. American Talent Cup, yeah. Have a women's Talent Cup somewhere. Why not? Why not? That it 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 ticks the box for diversity, okay? Which is all that a lot of corporations are trying to do. So if all you're trying to do is tick the box, it does that. It helps gain access to sponsors people in the paddock people you need to meet to go further long term it could be a touring women's cup you know you you select the best women out of the US out of Australia out of wherever that are competing um you know you gain assistance for sponsorship you raise funds to give a baseline sponsorship or not even you own the bikes like Moto E own the bikes you do that there's so much potential there and it's not being done and rather than promote the idea that women can be involved in sport what's happening is we're promoting one or two people that do it and because they don't have very compelling results we're all convinced that women must be shit which is not the case but they're not having the best results at the moment and that's fine too mm. like there's an opportunity to make change here but nobody wants to sort of do that
1: i don't go to many motor races obviously because this is Jim and I do this as a hobby you know we've got day jobs and families and stuff and so there's not a lot of time but I do go to Silverstone and I I mean Silverstone last year was a very very small crowd I'm not quite sure what went wrong I mean yeah it was very very expensive but one thing I did notice in particular was the total almost absence of young females there and you know having a talent cut you know female talent cut you know 50% of the population generally is is female right so (laughs) bring bring these people in because we need these people in the sport
3: but it's easy you do what you used to
2: do okay in the old days i don't know if this is how it worked in the uk but in australia when we had an event to promote we would ring every local radio station every local chronicle daily mail whatever we would ring them and say we've got 50 tickets we would ring the public schools and donate 50 tickets yeah and kids would come it's i get it right Anything to start is never gonna make money. It's not. It's 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 just not gonna make money like that. It is a trial and error investment long term. Think about what we're doing piece. But give people the opportunity to come for a tenor. You know, it doesn't even have to be much. Have a local school bus ready to take a bunch of kids on an excursion. You know, you set up avenues to find a new audience. That is how you find a new audience. You set it up so that as a five-year-old, young little Jenny has just fallen in love with a bike and she doesn't even know how it works, but she she likes it because it goes fast. That's your audience. Start there. Yeah. Start young. That, you know It's not hard. You give them a free like little paddock tour and they get to talk to athletes. At that age, they don't know how famous someone is or not. But when they're a bit older, let's say one of those athletes became quite influential. They get to say they met them and they've been a fan ever since. That's the that's your audience. You've got to build yeah. it from somewhere. And I, I feel like, you know, there's so many opportunities that go missed because we're all financially driven instead of longevity driven. And I really believe if you invest in the longevity of sport, you'll have more money in the long run anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an option.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm conscious of the time here because as usual, we're overrunning, Jim. Um, <laughs> what else is new? We've put the world to rights. I mean, I'm there's nothing there to be hopeful Please. about. A little bit frustrated about, but you know we're talking about it, so hopefully that helps to set things on the right line. A couple of light-hearted things, just a couple of really quick things to finish off with, Maddie, if that's okay. Um, yeah.
3: 2023
1: MotoGP World Champion, who are yeah. mm. you going to predict? I the Hold your. Yeah. Told you. <laughs> okay. You and you are it. on the same page? We're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll we'll come back to that in November. Um this is a kind of an adapted question because I asked this one to, to riders. But one of my favorite questions to ask is any bike, any track. Now, for a rider, it would be if you could ride any bike from history on any track from history, which would it be? So I'll change it a little bit. Which rider on which bike would you like to see uh, on which track?
3: Oh, I
2: like this question. This is one
1: for people with a bit of a history sort of bent in terms of, you know, knowing a bit about the glory days of the sport. Might even be. Do you know
2: what? Like, I will just say, generally speaking, and a lot of people are going to be like, that's a really odd one. Okay, but Ron Haslam anywhere. Because Ron Haslam is just cool. He's just the coolest dude. And he's business savvy. And I love that he's just passionate about stuff in general. Like, he is the coolest dude. You could put him on any bike, any track. I'd watch it happily. Happily.
1: Good answer. I mean, and the guy doesn't actually seem to age. He, no, he sort of has the ality life.
2: <laughs> my favourite Ron Haslam story is when um he went to compete in I can't remember what what class it was with Leon. So we had someone to tail Leon in like the late nineties, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I was like that's that's so switched on. He's great. I love him. He's brilliant.
1: Yeah, um that's a good answer by the way. Nobody's said Ron Haslam before, so yeah, that one I'm <laughs> going to keep in the back of my mind. And finally. um One of Jim and I's favourite little uh, discussion points at the minute is if you could bring a track on to the calendar, which one would it be and which one would you shift off to make way for it?
3: Oh,
2: I kind of want Bruno back, but we're just too fast for that track. Um, Mm. I don't don't know. I mean, I could I could happily shift Kazakhstan so we could go to McLaren Motorsport Park. That's an easy one.
3: (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: I'll I'll go anywhere. I'll go any I'll even go to Finland. I don't even think Finland's ready, but I'll go to Finland. I don't want to go to France.
1: We, we okay. keep giving shout out, to not Jim, for Kyle Army
0: in place of Valencia. Yeah. We've been down that <laughs> I path. Like, yes,
2: that's fair.
0: Yep. Yes, so,
3: that's
0: a good one. I'll I'll end with this quick question because this is kind of like my favorite thing. Which track would you want to see ran backwards?
1: Oh,
3: bloody hell. <laughs> Ooh.
2: Is it stereotypical if I say Phillip Island?
0: No, because I I've thought about it. I like thought a... about it too. Because <laughs> now you're going up Lukey Heights, yeah, well, which is yes, a whole different yeah. world of crazy, right?
2: I don't, I don't know how safe it would be, but that's well, that, interesting. To watch. I always, so I always be... like, always like,
0: always like to say that you know, provided the money was there to make it safe, right? What would which one would you turn around and go the other direction? And I never only ever really think about that because. When I was club racing, everybody complained that there weren't enough tracks in the area to race. So, Weira said we'd run one of the tracks in Michigan backwards. And That's awesome. And we, I had, as I started club racing there, I had, had, say, 10 weekends going the way we always went. And then we show up and, well, we're going backwards now. And you think you know something. You turn it around, it was like and you put me on the moon. <laughs> it's like the bumps are in different places. It just the whole thing becomes the weirdest mind, mental, whatever, you, you know, mind-blowing, mind-blowing experience that you can think of. So I always throw that one at people. Like, if you could turn around and go, go backwards on track, which one would you go to? That would be J- insane.
3: That
0: would be yeah. insane. Jim and I are old enough to remember when they used to go around Mizano the correct way. That's right. That's although part I, of it, although it too. Although I understand why they wow. changed that. Yep. Well, yep. it's like
2: yeah. when dinosaurs walk the earth, guys.
0: Uh, well, it was really <laughs> scary. You had to run quick and had to carry a big club. <laughs> Maddie, you're very,
1: favorite very prevalent on social media. Where do people find you? I know you're on Twitter, LinkedIn. How do people follow you? Because they really must.
2: Yes, uh, you can find me at Maddie underscore Patty. M-A-D-D-I underscore Patty. P-A-D-D-Y. Which is a nice play on words my husband. So
3: <laughs> yep. Yep. I thought,
2: damn find me anywhere that's pretty much it or on LinkedIn if you want to connect it's Maddie Patterson so you'll find me around and don't worry I usually pop up in someone else's feed anyway going <laughs> you're wrong <laughs> it's okay
1: it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you I must say you're dealing with jet lag very well you look uh, bright as a button
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've been up I'm so sorry I've been up since like 3 30 this morning and I thought I did so well because I got in I got into the hotel I stayed awake until about four and then I passed out
3: yeah.
1: and then
2: I woke up and I was like no but uh, we'll be fine. Get us some coffee into me.
1: I hope uh, the test is enjoyable. I'm sure it will be. I wish I was there to enjoy it with you. but um,
2: uh, I'll keep you guys updated on any news that comes through.
1: That would
0: be great. Oh, so, agree. Jim,
1: I don't know if you've got anything you want to add, but I just want to nope. say thank you very much,
0: Maddie. It's been an absolute pleasure. From me, Maddie, I appreciate thank your time. You. I know it's jet lag is a difficult thing. I have to do it for work sometimes. So I understand where you are. Yeah. I understand the need for coffee as well. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time. Uh, You've been more than gracious with your time and we really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll catch up soon.
0: That'd be great. Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks, bye.